Few stories are as enduring as that of the medieval English outlaw, Robin Hood. His mythology is over 500 years old, and there have been poems, ballads, nursery rhymes, novels, and even an opera to help sustain his legend. Moving into the 20th century, Hollywood hadn't yet made the transition to sound, but it still managed to film the folktale no less than six times. Since then, we've had a dozen more films, almost as many TV shows, video games, another opera, and even a ballet. But for me, there can be only one Robin Hood, Errol Flynn. Men, if you're willing to fight for our people, I want you. Are you with me? <laughs> then kneel and swear this oath. That you, the free men of this forest, swear to despoil the rich, only to give to the poor, to shelter the old and the helpless, to protect all women, rich or poor, Norman or Saxon, swear to fight for a free England, to protect her loyally until the return of our king and sovereign, Richard the Lionheart, and swear to fight to the death against our oppressors. The Adventures of Robin Hood, directed by Michael Curtiz in 1938, is still funny and romantic and full of action, and yet startlingly serious. More of which later, but for now, let's focus on how one of the greatest achievements from Hollywood's golden age almost foundered at its very first hurdle. What the devil? Come now, sir, guy. You'd not kill a man for telling the truth, would you? If it amused me, yes. You can be thankful that my humor's of a different sort. By what right do you interfere with the king's justice? By a better right than you have to misuse it. And that goes for your master, Prince John. I'll give him that message. At the Baron's meeting in Nottingham tonight. Thank you. He does need a bit of a talking to. Hey, Will? Yes, he has been getting rather out of hand. Catch him along. Hold there. What's his fault? He's killed a royal deer. You're wrong. I killed that deer. This man's my servant. Oh. I suppose you realize the penalty for killing the king's deer is death, whether for serf or noble. Really? Are there no exceptions? In the 1930s, the Warner Brothers studio was less known for big-budget action adventures than it was for gritty gangster pictures and depression-themed musicals. Formulaic genres that had bought them great success with titles such as The Jazz Singer, 42nd Street, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and The Public Enemy. That picture had made James Cagney a star, and Cagney was the first actor considered for the role of Robin Hood. Now, the idea of James Cagney leaping about Sherwood Forest in a pair of tights may sound absurd, but it was not without precedent. You see, in 1935, he had appeared as Nick Bottom in an adaptation of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. But that picture had fizzled at the box office, and so the brothers Warner, Harry, Albert, Sam and Jack, thought it best to stay well away from, well, men in tights, and stick to men with machine guns. And how are the dear Saxons taking the news, Sir God? They're even more worried than Longchamp, Your Highness. They'll be more than worried when I get through squeezing the fat out of that pampered hides. And you intend to act on your plans? What better moment than this, Sir God? Whoever would have thought my dear brother would be so considerate as to get himself captured and leave all England to my tender care? He may disapprove when he returns, Your Highness. If he returns. And I'll see to it that he doesn't. What or who changed the studio's mind? Hal B. Wallace was born Aaron Bloom Volovitz to Polish parents, Jews who changed their names to assimilate into a patently anti-Semitic United States in the 1890s. Wallace began his career running a Chicago picture house, but so organized was he 
that he was snapped up by Warner Brothers to run their publicity division. And it was there that Wallace helped tailor the images of the studio's stars, such as Edward G. Robinson, Paul Mooney and Betty Davis. Wallace's work ethic, he worked upward of 13 hours a day, catapulted him through the ranks to become head of production. A voracious reader, Wallace realised that Hollywood had not tackled Robin Hood since the silent era. And more than that, it had not presented Sherwood Forest in glorious Technicolor. It was those details that not only helped Wallace persuade the studio to make the movie, but also make the most expensive project Hollywood had yet undertaken. To justify the budget of $2 million, Wallace bought in Roland Lee, an English-born screenwriter who had penned an earlier Warner Brothers success, The Charge of the Light Brigade. But Lee's script alarmed Wallace because Lee had taken the inexplicable step of deleting the romance between Robin Hood and Maid Marian. You know you're very impudent. Me? You are. And when my real guardian, King Richard, finds out about your being in love with me... I know. You make me court jester. <laughs> you won't. He'll stick your funny head on London Gate. And a very fine decoration it'll be, my bold Norman beauty. I'm not bold. Well, you're Norman. Well, I don't hold that against you. And you are a beauty. You're the most beautiful. And you're leaving here at once. Please, darling, every minute you're here, you're in danger. I'll go. Marion, will you come with me? To Sherwood? I've nothing to offer you but a life of hardship and danger. But we'd be together. Robin, dear. I know. It's asking a lot. But who knows how long it'll be before Richard returns. Fry Tucker marries. Will you? Because I love you, Robin, I'd come. Wallace replaced Lee with Oscar winner Norman Riley Rain and Seaton Miller, instructing them to exactly what he wanted – action, comedy and romance. Wallace knew that if he could get those parts right, he could then put in place plenty of supporting characters to construct plenty of subplots to make sure that the story never sagged. You just harmed one hair of our lady's head. That ugly face of yours will be walking about with no neck under it. Now mind. What are you staring at? Well, I ain't never been out walking with a female before. What female? You. Well, of all the impudence. Huh? I suppose you say that to all the women that tickle your fancy. I've never tickled a woman's fancy before. Ah, oh. oh, no, I've never had a sweetheart. Do you mean to say you never had one single sweetheart in all your life? Ah! <laughs> you don't know what you've missed, my lad. I've had the bands up five times. But no sooner had the script been completed than Wallace lost his chosen star, James Cagney. Cagney had just issued legal proceedings against the studio for breach of contract, so Wallace turned to Errol Flynn. But in doing so, you may wonder why he had not chosen Flynn in the first place. Flynn had already proven himself to be a star two years earlier with The Charge of the Light Brigade, and a year before that, had shown he was capable of taking care of himself with the sword in Captain Blood. And on top of all that, in those two pictures, Flynn's co-star and romantic interest was one of Hollywood's all-time great beauties, Olivia de Havilland. With their screen chemistry already well established, both actors accepted their parts, but that didn't mean Wallace's headaches were over. The film's credits list two directors, Michael Curtiz and William Kiley. This is because shortly after filming began, Wallace realised that while Kylie was adept at the dialogue, he had no eye for action and worse, little sense of timing, by which is meant pacing. 
So, Curtiz was called in to solder up the action sequences and ensure that the dialogue was delivered quickly. All of which begs another, if not similar question. Why hadn't Wallace chosen Curtiz in the first place? After all, Curtiz had already directed Flynn and de Havilland in Captain Blood, where he had shown a great command in both action and romance. The answer may be as simple as this. Hollywood in the 1930s was akin to a factory, where the studios were releasing a film a week. Production was so streamlined, directors were given scripts on a Friday and expected to begin filming on a Monday. Everyone was part of the big machine, and actors and directors were not always assigned to suitable pictures, but rather allocated jobs because there was a gap in their schedule. Bring Sir Robin food at once, do you hear? Such impudence must support a mighty appetite. True enough, Your Highness. We Saxons have little to fatten on by the time your tax gatherers are through. Be seated, gentlemen. No need to stand on ceremony on my account. So you think you're overtaxed, eh? Overtaxed, overworked, and paid off with a knife, a club, or a rope. Why, you speak treason. Fluently. For all those near falls, one first call that Wallace made proved to be a winning call. When the film was being edited, Wallace contacted opera composer Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Born to a Jewish family in Austria, Korngold had gone to Hollywood in 1935 to score A Midsummer Night's Dream. Adapting the incidental music Felix Mendelssohn had written to Shakespeare's play, Korngold had stayed on temporarily to score Captain Blood before returning to conduct in Vienna's Opera House. Then, on Wallace's invitation, Korngold returned to Hollywood to view The Adventures of Robin Hood. But as he watched the rough edit, Korngold worried that his music would be no match to the wondrous Technicolor images lit by cinematographers Saul Polito and Tony Gaudio. More than that, Korngold felt that the pace maintained by the film's Oscar-winning editor Ralph Dawson was in little need of any musical support. As Korngold prepared to leave Hollywood, history intervened because, back in Europe, Hitler's Nazis annexed Korngold's Austrian homeland. Korngold elected to stay in the safety of Hollywood and his decision resulted in a masterpiece. Watch the film on DVD, neutralize the dialogue track and bring up instead the film's music and there you will hear Korngold's genius. He treated the score as an opera without vocals, giving each of the characters his or her own leitmotif. Now, I mentioned the film has a serious undercurrent, and I have already alluded to it. This was Hollywood in 1938, and over in Europe, Hitler and his henchmen were on the march. Hal B. Wallace realised it was an ideal time to revive a legend of an English hero who fights tyranny. And with that in mind, when you see the frightened villagers being burned out of their homes, entire towns razed to the ground, and then those same people forced to flee to the sanctuary of a forest, the reasons for filming the story make a lot more sense. 